Welcome to the Veteran Entrepreneur Masterclass with Brett Henderson, founder of Strategic Wealth Endeavor. We've created a community of veteran entrepreneurs just like you who are ready to help you succeed. Our podcast provides expert advice and resources so you can overcome any obstacle in your way. With the help of Brett and veteran guest experts, you can build a battle-ready business mindset to take your company to the next level. Thank you for listening to the Veteran Entrepreneur Masterclass. Now, on to the show. Marines, Navy, well, they're related, right? But then all military vets are related, aren't they? Brett's guest is a Navy vet who's also an alum of Blackstone, where he weathered the financial crisis living in the hedge fund world. Andrew Deck was also the co-founder of Blackstone's Commodity Fund. Before, he moved on to Kylix Investment Advisors and Mariner Investment Group, and that was before he co-founded Kovacs Data. All right, Brett, you got to take it from here, because if <laughs> I start talking about data security, digital identity, and blockchain, I get so intrigued, so in-depth, I can't stop. The focus here, though, is you and Andrew, so go for it. Patrice, you can take over if you want. No, 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 I, I can no, no, have no, an no, off no. day. That'd be fine. I, just, I you know. I, I love the call. blockchain concept, but go, 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 go talk. All right. All right. All right. Andrew, how are you, brother? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Appreciate you being here. So a little background. You and I met maybe a month or so ago from LinkedIn. Yeah. Yep. And we did. didn't know each other at all. And five minute conversation of what's up, pass the gut check, mutual gut check. You pass mine. Did I pass yours? Absolutely. We're here, right? Exactly. You know, and that, uh, that first five minutes turned into what, 20? I think, yes. I think we made each other late for some meetings. Yes. And the main thing for me, humbly, I'll share, I, I've been in the investment world for 20 plus, actually not 20 plus years, thankfully, 18, almost 20 years. And so Merrill Lynch and UBS, and then I saw all the names of the companies you've worked for and with been part of. And humbly, I was very intimidated by calling you. It's like, <laughs> dude, this dude's 10 times smarter than me. And I have a bunch of alphabet soup after my name. I'm like, this dude gets it, Blackstone, whatnot. You've been some big, big companies. But looking at your background in the Navy, I know you're salt to the earth. And so that's why I'm like, okay, I'm going to call this guy and hear his story. So I just want to give you mad cred before we begin. Like, I, I was intimidated to call you at first with everything well, you're I, doing. I, yeah, I appreciate that. And I think very quickly that that, you know, that wore off very quickly. Um, <laughs> not in a bad way, um, but like you said, salt of the earth. And I was an outlier at those places. You know, I wasn't the Ivy League education. I wasn't uh, the the legacy into Harvard or the legacy into onto Wall Street. You know, I, uh, I took a different route there and it really benefited me. But at the same time, it kind of put you in company that you were always a bit of the outlier. I, I think you just... I wasn't going to go there, but you just hit a topic or a point that I think so many veteran entrepreneurs, just veterans, I don't even be entrepreneur, just veterans in business field where you are an outlier and you are judged and you are held to a different standard. And there are stereotypes, some good, some bad. Right. Right. And, and we have to deal with both sides of that. So I'd love to ask, kind of going back to what you just said, when you got out and you went a different path. How did you know coming out of the Navy, you wanted to go in the investment world path? How, what was your mindset? Like, how did you first hear about it? How did you understand it? How did you even want to yeah. explore it? I fought it. Like I did not want to go into finance. So, you know, when I went into, when I went into the Navy, it was kind of, I did two years of college first and was kind of spinning my wheels a bit. In, in school, but spending a lot of money spinning my wheels and, and not really knowing what I wanted to do or where I wanted that focus to be. And the second year, I guess sophomore year, I spent some time as a finance and accounting major and was just bored to death. Um, I mean, just bored to death, debits and credits and, you know, all that stuff. Um, I hate but, it. Funny, I'm sorry to jump in because I'm an accounting oh. major and I actually love this stuff because yet <laughs> the numbers either balance or they don't. Either you got it right or you got it wrong. And I love yeah. there's a finite answer. And so right. I, I like that. So it's funny, just shows different mindsets. Yeah, exactly. Because I was in I was in class that geek, people geeked out about it. Like they loved it. Uh, but for me, it just, it wasn't my thing. So I went into the Navy, 
you know, went back to school right out of the Navy. And Sorry, I, I should have asked what, what year, what time frame was this or what year did you, so, you in school and then the Navy? Yeah. So 90 fall of 95 to spring of 97 uh, were my first four semesters, two years in college. And then in early summer of, of 97 was when I went into the Navy. Okay. So uh, did four years, came out and wanted to go back to school. So went back, I was at the University of Arizona, went back to the University of Arizona. And I grew up, growing up, I was a golfer. So loved to play golf. And when I went back to school, I took a job at a golf course, a very kind of nice upscale part resort, part country club. And I went back out of the Navy. I went back as pre-med. At that golf course, I got to interact with a lot of doctors um, because the membership base, obviously very wealthy. You get a lot of doctors there. Right. And kind of to a T, every single one of them told me, they said, look, unless this is your absolute calling in life, your, your passion beyond any passion, don't go into medicine. <laughs> they, they were saying, it's not what it used to be. You look at the kind of the bureaucracy around it, the red tape around it. It's just so little time is actually spent practicing medicine anymore. And they said a lot of them were getting ready to retire because of that. Hmm. So it kind of caused uh, a bit of a go find yourself moment for me. And I got introduced to somebody who was in the optical engineering department at the university of Arizona. And if you're familiar with the Hubble space telescope, yes, they, Underneath the football stadium at University of Arizona is where they ground the mirrors. They created the mirrors for the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. So U of A had at the time and probably still is the top ranked optical engineering program. Oh, wait. However, though, that mirror was not ground correctly, if I recall. They had to put it some, was, they had yeah, glasses. you're right. <laughs> I, actually have two, I actually have two funny stories coming out of that. So one is it was it was off by the thickness of one one hundredth the thickness of a human hair. Um, that's how little was off. And they were able to do a software modification to make it make it work. But I had a professor when I was at the U of A who his claim to fame was that he was on one of the original Mars rover teams. And the original Mars rover, one of the early Mars rovers crashed into Mars, never didn't survive. And he was telling the story about how during the engineering process, they had different teams working on different things. Problem was that some were working in international units and some were working in standard units. Uh, and, this is going. You know, obviously um, somebody's working in inches, somebody's working in yep. centimeters it's not going to work. So, you know, I don't know. We never really knew how real that story was, or if it was super real, you know, why you would admit to that right. <laughs> to your students that you're trying to gain the trust of, but it really just showed you. And you know, this from being in the military, how important communication is within a team. So that was a, a little lesson that, you know, yeah. I mean, that's one lesson also in being humble about failure because you learn yeah. from that. Right. And so yeah. failing is, I think I've said this on a few podcasts now. I think if and when I ever hire another employee, my first question is going to be, if I ask them, why should I hire you? The answer I want to hear is because I failed more than anyone else here. Right. And if someone can take that humble pie and admit their failures and what they've learned from, because they have, they have that, much, that much more experience that makes them that much better. Question for you going back before you move forward. Yeah. You did four years in the Navy and then you decided to get out. What was What was the pivotal moment after, say, what? two, three years when you knew this isn't what I want to do. I, I don't want to stay in for now. What, what was the moment there? What was the decision or was there an action or a mental state where you're like, I'm done and I'm not going to do this for now? Yeah. So for me, I went into the Navy with the sole intention of being a SEAL. Like that was the only reason I went in. And you and I talked about this, you know, you were, you almost went Navy, um, but they wanted you to go nuclear, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm dumb. <laughs> um, <laughs> They, they did the same thing with me. I was enlisted, but they still wanted me to go the nuclear, the nuclear program. And my response was, well, can I be a SEAL and do that? And they said, no. And they just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I said, look, I will take anything, but it's gotta be something I can, I can do and be a SEAL. 
it was the sole purpose I was going in for. And when I was at Bud's, I ended up getting hurt. And I got hurt to the point where I wasn't going to be able to continue and I wasn't going to be able to go back. Um, so it kind of removed the, the main purpose for, or the only purpose at the time for me going in. Now, I still made the best of it. You know, I went off and I did various things, uh, primarily search and rescue that, uh, that I absolutely loved when I was doing it and really made for kind of an eventful and, and interesting time in, but, uh, you know, it wasn't why I was there. And with that kind of removed, I just said, you know, it's, this isn't this, you know, fleet life, um, regardless of what it is not, not for me. So. I think actually, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's a nice, you had a goal. That goal is unattainable. You didn't ring the bell, but you went a different course because that you, you had a m- mindset or goal and, and that was no longer palatable. All right, pull on the next. Yeah. I think that make that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. So, um, back to the finance thing, um, Please. to make the, the story shorter, I was playing golf with a guy who, um, was in finance and he was a, a mortgage bond trader at the time. And we would play golf and we would go and have a few beers afterwards. And he learned through all of this that I was a, an engineering major and engineering majors or engineers in general are kind of, at least at the time, fairly sought after in the finance world for a number of reasons, the math background, lack of emotion, kind of that <laughs> logical approach to problem solving and things like that. And he just kept pushing me. And I was at the time I was focused on both my education, but also I wanted to play professional golf. So I was focused on those, those two things. And I just fought him. I was just like, I'm finance bores me. Like I can't imagine sitting at a desk trading mortgage bonds. And that sounds awful to me. And his partner in all of this was a senior partner of Blackstone. So you're, you're starting to see a kind of yep. path here okay. starting to form relationships. Anyway, fast forward like eight months and I get a call from him, got out of an, got out of an 8am class. I got a call from him and he's just said, Hey, come into the office. How's in town? How Linquist is the senior partner of Blackstone. He was also the partner in this guy's mortgage shop. Um, how's in town. I want you to meet him. I'm like, I said, Pete, you know, I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. I haven't shaved in a week. I just got out of an 8am class. Like I'm in no shape to interview. And he's right. just like, you probably look better than anybody in this office. Just, you know, <laughs> just get in here. And I went in and I, I met with, with Hal Linquist and we, we chatted about all kinds of things, just from math to the military, to markets and just really hit it off. And, you know, long story short, I, did a summer internship and, and really never left. And that was 2002. And then five years later, Blackstone was getting ready to go public. And uh, as a result, Hal being a senior partner had to clean up some outside interests. And one of those was a company that I worked for. So I, he shut that company down and I moved over to, to Blackstone. Okay. That, okay. That's, so that's the power of relationships. That's exactly. So, now, okay. And then, so you were there for f- how many, five years you said? Uh, before I went to Blackstone. Oh, okay. So you did five years and then you went to Blackstone. So you yeah, said, so I, did I thought you said that you had the internship. Is that internship? Yeah, so I did was the with internship, a subsidiary? With them, yeah. For five okay. years. Okay. Um, and then, and then went to Blackstone. Okay. And then after Blackstone, what was next for you? So after Blackstone, uh, I went to Kylix, which was uh, a hedge fund originally that was part of Blackstone and then spun out when kind of in the aftermath of the financial crisis, Blackstone decided to get out um, of the uh, out of the hedge fund industry, like this, the specifically the buy side of the hedge fund industry, running individual hedge funds. Um, They still kept their fund of hedge funds and things like that, but actually having proprietary hedge funds, they decided to get out of that business. So with, with you though, were you in that subsidiary and they moved you over or? No. So um, (laughs) I was in one part of Blackstone called the, the fund of hedge funds. 
Um, and that's where I was hedging out risk and creating a commodity fund or co-creating a commodity fund. And they were getting ready to launch an Asia Pacific driven uh, hedge fund, an internal proprietary hedge fund. And I got moved over to there. And so for like a year, maybe a little bit more, I was commuting back and forth to Hong Kong. So I spent a good part of my life in New York and a good chunk of it in Hong Kong as well. And I was actually getting set to move to Hong Kong when they pulled the plug on the hedge fund businesses in, in, in its entirety. So the fund I was with never launched. Kylix, How long were you setting that up? A little over a year in total. So you've got a year vested, you're setting something up that never came to fruition. How does that feel? It's a gut punch. I mean, you it's an absolute gut punch. You, you Did you spend, take it personally? Did you think it was you? No, no. I knew better. Um, I had spent so much time with with Hal, and he's a senior partner there. I got to know some of the very senior people uh, before and after I went there. And no, I didn't take it personally. It was a business decision. And it, it, it wasn't like, hey, how do we screw these guys over? Or we don't, it's not even, we don't even care about these guys. Because um, you were still on board. They weren't like, the deal's done and you're out. Like that, they, the well, deal's we done, you're not on that yeah. deal anymore. Yeah. And they tried, they offered to send me back to the fund of hedge funds within Blackstone. Um, but at the same time, Kylix, which was an internal fund, decided to spin out and just keep the fund going on their own. And they offered me um, head of risk and trading. So I decided, you know, after, after talking to that team and, and understanding what the model was going to be spinning out of Blackstone, what it was going to look like, I decided to, to go over there instead. So it's kind of like moving in with an aunt and uncle. Yeah, a little bit. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. So I moved in with my uncle and uh, we tried to build that fund out. And okay. that was a really, that was a really tough time because that's, you got to think that's 2010, 2011. Mm. I mean, the, the world had just gotten yep. beaten down and people aren't really up for writing checks. Um, they're very, very nervous. Um, so yeah, trying to grow that, grow and scale that business was, was a tough ask. Um, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. How did that fund do? And then your role within that fund, did you settle in? How big was that team? The fund did fine. I mean, from a performance perspective, the fund did, did well, but the funny thing that was happening around that time was for the most part, allocations into alternative investments, primarily hedge funds, were going to the really well-known funds. They were going to, you know, um, the multi-billion-dollar, you know, Elliott and D. Shaws and SACs of the world. They weren't going to the smaller funds that had just spun out of Blackstone. Um, they weren't even going. Even some traders that had come out of those shops, you know, out of the SACs. For example, the portfolio manager, the, the fund manager for the Asia Pacific fund that I was a part of at Blackstone, he was an ex, an ex SAC guy. Um, and money just wasn't going to them. These, these bigger funds had opened up again because a lot of them had taken some losses and had some room in their funds and wanted to get some more capital in. And that's really where it was going. So the performance was good from a returns perspective, but he just, Manish, who was the, the founder CIO, uh, decided after maybe about a year or so that he was just going to kind of shut it down because um, he was just having trouble raising money. Right. And then, so you're in the corporate game, you're playing the game, you're building the skill set, you've got the relationships, you're well-liked. You've had some failures. You learn from those failures. Not you personally, but maybe I'm sure, sure. you did too. I've been a part of them, yeah. Yeah. So then you just keep building your experience, building your acumen. And then, so what was what was next? When did you make the decision to just leave being on the fun teams and say, I'm going to start my own gig? So that was kind of my goal all along was, you know, before in those five years, before I went to Blackstone, um, through my relationship, my businesses with how I had my own gig. Like I had, we set up a hedge fund. 
we had capital in it. We were running it and doing well with it. And that was always my goal. So even when I went to Blackstone, I told them from the very beginning, I said, look, I'm happy to move to New York. I'm happy to be a part of the team, but there is going to be an expiration date on this. And everything that I did within or during my tenure at, at Blackstone was done so with the, the purpose of getting back to the other side of the, of the table and getting back into that, the, the hedge fund was that hard to keep that focus or was it like every six months it pop back in or was it, okay, this is, did you feel you're on the track? Yeah, it was, it was always there. And it was, it wasn't hard because I was, even though I was on the other side of the table, I was still living that industry. I was living that world. And not only was I living it, but I was living it with the most established best hedge fund managers in the world. Um, The exposure that it gave me, to to them and to their ideas is was just unparalleled i mean i i couldn't it's kind of like even my time in the navy right my time in the navy it didn't go the way that i wanted it to right but i learned so much about myself and about teamwork and others and failure and success and all of these things that you know i wouldn't trade it for anything and it was the same with my time there like i knew that it's kind of like going to college. Like, you know, that this isn't the end goal. You're not going to be a student for your entire life. So it's setting yourself up for that next phase and it's learning and, you know, just getting that exposure to those, those managers and their ideas. And, you know, being at Blackstone, you get such a deeper exposure. You know, I could call up a hedge fund manager and I could go into their office and I could sit down and we would talk through every position in their book, Mm. you know, why do you, why are you long this, this name or this credit? Why are you short this one? You know, why do you have this on? Why is it sized that way? And they would, they would give you like a very clear picture. You know, it wasn't, nothing was hidden. They weren't, they weren't worried about anything. Um, So just, I mean, just the education there was. And experience and confidence, right? That you gotta be confident going there and have that. But you, yeah. so you, while you were doing that though, there's a lot of guys and gals that just want to be in that space for a career because it's good money. It's very lucrative, you know? Yeah. And, but you, that wasn't your end goal. No. So how did no, you, did, so how, when did you feel you had enough experience that you said, okay, I'm going to start my own? You know, I don't, or think did it, it happen that way? Did it not happen it, that way? It didn't happen that okay, way. Okay. So I should see, I, I, I made an assumption. Please I'll forgive be- me. Yeah, no, I think opportunity created it for me. So, you know, for example, each of these, each of these events, um, Blackstone shutting down or giving me the opportunity to go to the Asia Pacific fund, that was going to be a hedge fund, right? So that was my move into that space or back into that space. That shut down. I could either go back into the fund of funds or I had this opportunity with a hedge fund, you know, to go and be their head of risk and trading. And the opportunity was there. So I took it, whether or not I was absolutely ready for it or not from the, for the position that I was in with the fund that it was. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was definitely ready for that opportunity. Okay. And then when that shut down and um, you know, it was kind of interesting when that shut down, uh, I took a few months off and just kind of took a breath. And then the opportunity at Mariner popped up. And that was a chance within a hedge fund to run my own book, you know, which is kind of the the next closest thing you can get to having your own fund is, is being a portfolio manager within an existing hedge fund. And that was just timing opportunity and in relationships. I mean, you don't, that doesn't just, that doesn't just fall in your lap. You obviously. No. Yeah, no, that was, that was relationships and having been at Blackstone and having been at Kylex, you know, that was helpful. Um, absolutely. Um, and that was, you know, that was kind of the, the honest admission by a couple of the guys at Blackstone. When I told them, you know, look, I'll come here, but it's got an expiration date. They said, that's fine. They said, once this is on your resume, you can, you know, it's a game changer. And they were right. You know, it really has been, it really has been a game changer. So it's just been my, my kind of progression through that wasn't always about whether or not I was ready it was just more about the opportunity to present it itself. And those opportunities are few and far between. 
you know, there's a lot of people that want those opportunities. So right. when, when you're given to, you know, given the opportunity to take one, you've got to, you've just got to jump in. That makes sense. I appreciate you sharing that. So then how long were you at Mariner and that's in that role? About two years. Okay. And then was, years. was that your expiration after two, you kind of, you gave yourself two as a timeline to go in or, or. Yeah. So, well, so Mariner was, Mariner was interesting. Um, when I sat down with them, my expiration date on New York was kind of coming to a close as well. And so it was a lifestyle play, not just a career play. It was a, a lifestyle. And Oh, definitely. You know, New York, especially when I was at Kylix, for example, you know, being in that position, we had probably 25 to 30 brokers, Goldman Sachs, you know, the Oppenheimers, all those that, that want to execute your trades for you and give you research in return. And my position kind of was the gatekeeper to all of those commission dollars. Nice. So I was being wined and dined yeah. kind of on a constant cycle. Romancing um, the stone. And it was tiring. I mean, it was really cool at first. I remember very early on getting offered World Series tickets, getting offered, you know, to go to the Super Bowl. I, I couldn't take those, but you know, um just that kind of attention was yeah. was a bit intoxicating. But after a while, it just got tiring. You know, it's like Monday through Thursday, you'd have someone to meet up with for drinks after work, then you'd have a dinner. You know, so you go into the office at 7 a.m., you're out kind of smoozing until 9, 10 o'clock at night, drinking. It's just from a lifestyle perspective, it is not, <laughs> it is not sustainable. Um, and I remember, <laughs> I remember I, I walked in to meet this old time trader, like old school trader um, at uh, Porcini. Uh, I can't remember the name. It's gone now. But okay. met him at the bar and he, in the time I drank two beers, he had drew, he drank six. Um, and then the bartender came over and said, Hey, you know, do you want another one? He goes, I mean, he was being completely honest. He's like, no, I've got to drive. So I'm going to switch to Chardonnay. So he quit drinking beer and switched to wine. And I was just like, I looked at this guy and I'm like, <laughs> no, like this, <laughs> That was a moment for me where I was just like, I can't be that guy in, in 20 or 30 years that is, you know, six beers deep switching to Chardonnay because I <laughs> have to drive right. home. Right. Right. Um, that makes sense. That's not the life I want. Yeah. So. Okay. So yeah. when did you go from being there in the world, being wine and dine, it's safe, it's secure, you've got relationships, I'm sure you're making decent money, right? And <laughs> so that's, you were still in New York at that time. So how many years consecutively were, in, were you in New York? Five. Okay. Five. Okay. Wine um, and dine for the last two. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, I'm getting a little fat, <laughs> a little tired. Get it. <laughs> yeah. Fat, in there. fat, dumb and happy, I guess. Yeah. Or fat, dumb and tired. Yeah. Yeah. So when I went, when I sat down with the CEO at, at Mariner, I said, look, I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to do this, but I don't want to be in New York anymore. And he said, you know, that's fine. He said, we'll set you up wherever you want to be. And I said, California. He said, fine. He said, you've got to come back every month to six weeks or something like that. But so I, that's when I moved to Del Mar and uh, set up a little office in my house in Del Mar. And, and that was that. And okay. uh, yeah. So did that for about uh, yeah, two years, give or take. And there was always a little bit of a, so within Mariner, more and more people were kind of doing what I was doing, not being in the office, you know, living elsewhere. And some people were fine with it and others were not. And there was always kind of that underlying tension there um, about, you know, there were some people that clearly didn't like the fact that I was living in California and not, not in New York, not in the office every day. Um so after, yeah, after about two years, I was just kind of like, you know, it's time to go do something different. Okay. I was getting tired and yeah. So I, I shut it down with them and took a little bit of time to just try to figure out what the next move was at that point. So talk through that moment, like you're fat, you're fat, dumb and happy. You got a nice house in Del Mar. 
sure the bank account's looking okay. Did you have a wife then yet? Or was she? No. Okay. No, I, I didn't. Um, and which made it easier, you know, you know, not having a wife, not having a family at the time that, that made it certainly easier. Okay. Um, and it was just one of those things where I just, I just kind of had enough, you know, the, I'm not even sure that there was a single moment, you know, you asked me earlier, was there a moment when I knew I was ready or, or something like that? But yeah. Yeah. No pivotal moment. Like, just, just, just like done. a culmination of things. Yeah. It's just like a culmination of things. And, um, it's kind of like, I just hit a point where it's like enough is enough. But it wasn't a situation where, you know, you have no money, your 401k is empty. Like you, you're doing well, you're successful. You had a reserves, right? You could take some time off and just relax and reset and recharge. And so that's what you did. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to kind of have that, you know, have that opportunity. I get, and that's not lost on me either. You know, even what, what we talk about here with the, that transition, I saw in one of the emails from the group earlier, um, somebody talking about that transition from military life to civilian life and, you know, military is so underpaid that you don't, you're just kind of kicked out the door. Like you're given some, you know, you're not, you're not even given anything. I mean, you're given some classes and things like that to, to try to make it look better than it really is. But, you know, you're just kind of being booted out the door and depending on how long you've been in, that transition can be anywhere from like, for me, it wasn't a huge deal because I'd only been in for four years. It's not like I had fully embraced that, that military like mindset. Right. right. Um, Borg. But the longer you're in, like it's a completely different way of life. And now you're kind of in the civilian world and that transition, oftentimes you've got no money. Um, the skill set is, indeterminably transferable, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you take, you know, what you do every day and, and transfer that into civilian life and, and try to sit across the table from somebody and get them to understand, like, I can do this job because I did this in, in the military. Right. Um, so it's, it, it's, yeah, I recognized how, how lucky I was, how fortunate I was, but it was, it was also one of those moments where I, kind of thought back and I was just like, wow, you know, if this was a different situation, like I can't imagine what I, what I would do right now. Right. So when, when did you make that decision then to really try your own gig? Cause now you are an entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's just you, it's just your idea. It's your product it, though. So you had the reserves and so you felt confident you've had the experience, you had the connections. Why don't you kind of talk, talk me through, talk us through when you're like, okay, let's do my own gig. Yeah. So it was, it, it was kind of interesting. It's just the way things happen sometimes, I guess it's the easiest way to say it. So back in 2007 or 2008, when I was, when I was at Blackstone, I invested in this um, company called Cold Store and Cold Store was um, going to be the first kind of cloud-based data archiving um, service. And had some really interesting ideas. They they kind of had an idea for blockchain before it was blockchain. Like when they had a patent application for what equated to blockchain, you kind of had to draw the lines to make it because it wasn't called blockchain at the time. Um, but they had a patent application for what effectively was a form of blockchain dating to right around the same time where the original white paper on Bitcoin was released. Mm, 2013. So, what's that? No, 2013. 2008. Wow, 2008. that's soon. Yeah. So, um, just seeing some of their ideas and and the the concepts. So we invested in this company. Um, myself, Hal Linquist was in, was an investor as well, um, and a few other kind of mutual mutual friends were were investors and. Much is the problem with a lot of companies. It had great concepts, um, great people on the engineering side, but the the business side of things was just lacking. Um, and and that's so often a problem. 
is, you know, you, you've got a great idea, you've got a great product, um, but running a business is a whole different ballgame. Operations. And it was almost like there was this unwillingness. There was this, like, I'm holding on so tight. This, this company's my baby because the product was my baby. Um, and there was this inability to kind of separate, you know, the product from the, from the business or the company. And as a result of that, the company, well, it also didn't help that it was 2008, 2009, 2010, right. you know, when the world's going to hell. Um, but as a result, the company just failed um, from a, a business perspective. But again, fast forward about five years or so, maybe a, maybe six, um, uh, being an investor, we were able to get the IP. Okay. So we get the IP, Hal and I sit down and we're just like, you know, what should we do with this? Because we knew, at least at the time, it was a great idea. And there's a lot of interested parties in it. What should we do with this? And this was kind of during that time in my life where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So we um, went to a couple of computer scientists and said, hey, take a look at this IP and tell me what you think, just to see if we had anything there. So we gave it to him and maybe like six weeks later, one of them comes back, he goes, he said, I want to be a part of this. That was his answer. I want to be a part of this. And I remember looking that's at how like, that's a, that's about as good an answer. Yeah. As yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, he could have, he could have gone into computer language all he wanted and say, yeah, you know, the code does this and the code does that. But when he said, I want to be a part of this, that kind of summed everything up. So again, it was, it's kind of like everything else, right? It was the opportunity, the timing of it. It wasn't me saying like, I'm ready. It was just like, I've got this opportunity now. Let's, let's take it. Um, but by and large, this has been the biggest challenge I've faced this, this company, this, this entire thing from, from day one back then until, you know, to where we sit today and tomorrow's going to be a challenge. It's been the biggest challenge I've faced. Why do you say that? Why do you feel it's such a big challenge and and why does it, why is it not getting easier? Well, Markets are markets, right? Whether you're the biggest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater, or you're some high school kid with a Robin Hood account, markets are markets. And right. um, you can access them. They're, I don't want to say fair to everybody. They're more fair to some people than others, but you still get access to them. You know, the, the price that I pay for a stock is if we bought it at the same time, is going to be right around the price that you pay for a stock. Um, markets don't care who you are right. uh, for the most part. Business business development, growing a business, that's so not true. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's an entire different thing because not only do you have product development, you've got the operation side of things like we talked about, you've got the sales side of things. Um, so now you know, it's, it's almost like the old stockbrokers in a way where you had to convince somebody to go buy a Ford stock or have them buy Ford stock for you or something like that. You've got this product. Now you've got to convince somebody to buy it. You know, that's challenge number one. Then you got to convince enough people to buy it all at the same time where you've got to make sure that this product is evolving, you know, because it's technology and technology is constantly changing and competition is constantly coming in. So you've got to continue your product development all at the same time where you've got the operations of the business to worry about all at the same time where you've got to convince more and more people to buy it all at the same time where at least in the early stages, not enough people are buying it to pay you enough to keep your operation going. So you've got to raise capital. So you're kind of always one customer or one capital raise away from being a unicorn or going and find another job. Right. Um, you know, it's unlike the markets where, you know, yeah, there's a million things that affect the price of the stock. Um, but, you know, when it boils down, they're still fair to everybody. I remember just a couple of weeks ago, because we're in the middle of a capital raise right now. Um, and I remember just a couple of weeks ago, I was just getting frustrated. And because customers aren't coming as quickly as I would like. And, um, <laughs> Do they ever? 
They don't. You're right. Uh, customers weren't coming as quickly as I like. The capital's not coming as easily as I like. And I was just really getting frustrated. I was just like, you know, you know, maybe it's just time to, maybe it's time to say, all right, you know, this one's just not going to do it. And I was on a website and they had that CAPTCHA technology. And I'm yep. sure you said, yeah, I'm not a robot. You check yep. a box. Yep. 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 And another window pops up as no- annoying as shit, right? Like another window pops up and like check all the pictures with sidewalks in them. And, you it's know, and I remember thinking to myself, like, if this piece of shit technology can be ubiquitous, what we've got has got to succeed. Like, <laughs> There's absolutely, I mean, I almost started taking it personally at that point, like that this capture technology can be everywhere when it's terrible. Um, and we were, you know, struggling. Okay. So I, that kind of, that kind of motivated me because I was just, you know, I, yeah, it's just, it was just one of those moments where I just got motivated because I'm like, somebody's making a ton of money off of this terrible product, right. um, there's no way that I'm going to fail with a product that can actually do some good and make sense. You mean, so it's not perfect, the entire process? It doesn't just line up the exact way you thought it would your business plan that you had formally done? You know, you say that sarcastically, but so many investors think that that curve is nice and smooth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I actually have, I wish, well, this is video, but I actually... I have a newsletter they send out and it says like mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, like beginning and then exit. Right. And they have a straight line. This is like what you think. Then like reality, it's like, like yeah. a big <laughs> piece of spaghetti going all over the place. Like that's yeah. exactly what it is. It's never a smooth ride. And it's a, it's a combination of events and factors and relationships and mindset. And a lot of it's just grit. So what I'm hearing you say there, you're, you're starting to have self-doubt. Like, is it worth it? I'm putting all my heart, all, all my soul. I'm, on, I'm in my own. I'm not getting the money. I'm not getting, it's not going fast enough. I, I'm not where I was. I'm not comfortable, fat and happy anymore. Right. I want to do this. Right. Absolutely. That's, that is the spot. And then now I will ask you then, so you're in that low point, then you saw that capture thing. And then what is it about you? We're like, F this. I'm not done. If these idiots can do it, I can do it. And I will do it. When was that spark or what was, what was, what were you telling yourself then? I remember. So that night it was, it was late at night. I was, I was working and I just remember being down kind of most of the day, like, you know, maybe like you said, that self doubt, I just kind of had that, that moment where I'm trying to think of a, you remember the movie major league? Of course. Okay. I'm sure most people who listen to your podcast would remember that movie. There's a, the scene at the end where the, the guy can't hit the curveball. Okay. And he's like, F you, Joe Boo, I do it myself. Um, it was kind of one of those moments where it's just like, I was just sitting there and I was already frustrated. I was already irritated. And all I wanted to do was go on this website to download this report that I needed. And I got this capture thing and it kept popping up these pictures. And it's like, you know, check all the taxi cabs and check all the sidewalks. And all I wanted was this report. And I just got pissed. And I'm just like, that, that sparked me at that moment. I was just like, there is no effing way that, you know, technology that is this bad, but this widely adopted um, can be out there. And what we have fail, like, I'm just not going to let that happen. Um, And that was, that was kind of it for me. You know, that was enough for me because I've always had that mindset you know, for your guys or for you, it's like, it's almost like that. And I don't know what kind of language I'm allowed to use on that podcast, but you almost have to wide open. You almost have to have that. Like I'm a fucking Marine, like mindset, right? It's like, now I'm not advocating that you never say we need to like, this just didn't work, you know? Cause like you said, at the very beginning, people are going to fail. Like you're going to fail. Like that's going to happen. It's, but it's all on how you frame it. It's all on how you look at it. George Kurtz, who's the founder of CrowdStrike, has a really great quote. He's just like, fail fast, evolve faster. Um, you, know, no, you bring up a good point. Bring a good point. Like, we're, I'll just think about business, my own business right now. And like, the podcast is an investment. And we have other programs that are all investments. They're expenses, but yes, they're investments. And those investments take time, right? Just like you. Like, I wish that my podcast had 
several hundred thousand listeners, but we're still small, right? It's only been a month and a half or so. And right. so I wish we were bigger and I wish our brand was out there and I wish more veterans were reaching out and I wish we had, you know, just like everything you have, but it, it takes time and you, you do start to sit, okay, am I, should I do this? Is it worth it? Am I reaching out enough? Is it turning right. into dollars, coming cents, coming back for me? Am I, is everything I'm doing altruistic and I'm giving everything away? You, you believe it. One guy said, if you want to be a millionaire, help a million people, right? Help, 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 give, give, give. And that's all this is, is trying to give knowledge, give help, but it takes time for whatever to happen. I don't, I don't know where this is going to go, right? As I'm just, this is right, right now an investment expense, but it's like, I think getting that, uh, all I guess I'm sharing is that I understand and I'm with you. And like, and you just kind of go, you, and you have confidence in yourself and I have confidence in you and Patrice. Oh, maybe she has a confidence in me, but I don't know. She, Patrice comes <laughs> of course I do. All right, of course go, I do. Go. I'm here. But we all have that self-doubt, right? And you just got to, yeah. like, okay, here it is. Go away. Let's roll. Let's fucking yeah. roll. And that's kind of, I do that. I have it too. And I think a lot of our listeners have that. And that's okay. It's natural. You have that moment, but having the strength, the fortitude, the grit to drive on and not let it beat you and beat it. That's the the stamina that makes us different. Right. Right. I think that's what it does. So what, what would you say then, Andrew, like one piece for another entrepreneur like you, you know, some guys go through different paths. You've gone through the nice, a nice New York white collar path. (laughs) You know, that being said, still, you got your lessons, you've been kicked a little bit, and it hasn't always worked out. You've had failures. What is the one lesson you would throw out there to our veteran entrepreneurs? I think it's what we just talked about, really. It's it's you're going to have successes, you're going to have failures. To your point about the, the newsletter, right? You know, it's don't expect that straight line. Um, but when it boils down to it, your listeners are just like me and you, they're vets. Okay. So nothing in their life most likely has ever been that straight line, (laughs) that nice smooth path. And they've always come out the other side better. So there's no reason for this to be different. You know, just, um, it's really just keep believing in yourself, regardless of whether or not anybody else believes in you, because you're always going to have your critics. Um, and frankly, I've often found that the more critics I have, that means I'm probably moving more and more in the right direction. Yeah, you're always going to have your critics. You're always going to have your doubts. You're always going to have your failures and your successes. But just you know, believe in yourself more than anything. Um, if you've got that self-belief, it will overcome that self-doubt. It will overcome that external doubt um, or criticism. Um, and yeah, just that keep that mindset. Like I'm a fucking Marine. Like just well, it doesn't a veteran in general it could be Navy, could be Air Force, could be anything. Yeah. Even though I am or in your Navy, you know, I think right. what you just said. If I'll, in your words, I'll try and summon my own words, and I've used it now a couple times in podcasts. The I and your R, your identity, you're always a ten. Certain roles, your role, you could be one or two. A skill set, raising a business or playing a sport, a new hobby, your role is not going to be strong, but your identity is always a ten. But as you gain experience and you have that grit, that role score will come up. And just know it's okay to know it's okay. Not every, you're not going to always be attended everything all the time, you know, yeah. and, and power through that. So I think you hit the nail on the head. So if we as veterans and entrepreneurs can know, Hey, we're in the cycle of suck right now. It's okay. But we always get through that cycle of suck and you have to just keep going. Or you just sit there. You can't just sit there. Failure is not an option. And that mindset is what works for us. And I think you understand that and you won't fail. I know you're not going to fail. Right. Well, and to take your INR, um, know what you know and know what you don't know and don't cross that line. So if, you know, being an I, you're always a 10. Okay. And maybe there's some R's in this business that you're trying to start where you're a zero or a one, yep. you know, go find somebody that's a 10 in that R partner up with them, you know, um, pay them something or, or not like partner with them. You know, it's, you know, hundred percent of zero is zero. Exactly. Um, I can make so things faster. No, that could definitely make things faster, which is good. So yeah. this is, this has been awesome. I'm glad you're here. I think, you know, maybe another six months as you continue your path, sure. I'd love to have you come back. And uh, do you, do you shoot at all now? Do you ever shoot? No, not since I was actually, I haven't I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever, I, I've even touched a gun since I was in. All right. Well, I may have something for you, Andrew. Okay. How can people reach you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn and uh, they can always reach me at uh, 
can I say an email address? You can say whatever you want. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's your plug. Guys, you know, these, so adex02 at gmail.com um, is my personal email. So Alpha, Delta, Echo, Charlie, Kilo, yes. ADEC. Yep. At Gmail. At Gmail. Awesome. And then I'm Brett at Sierra Whiskey Echoes, Strategic Wealth Endeavor, 90.com. This has been awesome, man. I appreciate you being on the show. And I honestly, I know you're not going to fail. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing where this is going in the next six months. And next time I come down to San Diego, uh, I should take the train down, go, go see the ponies. Are you still by uh, Domar or are you, are you San Diego? I split my time. So right now I'm actually sitting up in Oregon. Oh, right actually, uh-huh. I have someone who was actually looking for some names in Oregon. Uh, so actually we'll talk offline. So yeah, this, let me know. this could be really good. Oh, this sure. is good. P- Patrice, you're in charge. All right. From Oregon to Del Mar. All right. Or vice versa. Well, everybody, follow, subscribe to the podcast, knowing the latest episode is ready. And of course, we ask that you share with friends and with colleagues who would benefit from the information or just find it interesting. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Veteran Entrepreneur Masterclass podcast. Don't forget to click the follow button to become notified when new episodes become available. Securities offered through IFP Securities, LLC, DBA Independent Financial Partners, IFP, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through IFP Investors, LLC, DBA Independent Financial Partners, IFP, a registered investment advisor. IFP and Strategic Wealth Endeavor INC are not affiliated. The views expressed are that of the host and are for informational purposes only and in no event should be construed as an offer to buy or sell securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Neither IFP Investors LLC IFP Securities LLC, DBA Independent Financial Partners, IFP, nor their affiliates offer tax or legal advice. Interested parties are strongly encouraged to seek advice from qualified tax and or legal experts regarding the best options for your particular circumstances. The information given herein is taken from sources that IFP Advisors LLC, DBA Independent Financial Partners,